We'll be looking in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 24. So please take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews 12, verses 18 to 24. I've entitled this, really it's a devotional, uh, not much more than that. I've been meditating on Hebrews and my personal devotions, and uh, this passage impacted me as has many passages as I've been slowly going through this book. And I've just entitled this, Which Mountain Do You Dwell On? Sinai or Zion? And we'll consider this tonight as a devotional uh, with God's help. So if you found your place, please follow along with me as I read. Verses again. Chapter 12, verse 18 to 24. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness, and gloom, and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words, which sound was such, that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels and to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to all spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Amen. Well, just a few words about the book of Hebrews. The author is unknown. Uh, Some speculate that it's Paul. Um, It is just speculation. I, I don't necessarily agree with that. The structure of the Greek is radically different than his other epistles, and Having authored so many other books, I don't see why it would be a secret that he authored this book. But nevertheless, uh, it is a book written for our instruction, and it really flows more like a sermon than a letter. It's full of exhortations. There's exhortations as you go throughout. Um, The writer doesn't hesitate to give strong exhortations several times through the letter. And really, it's addressed to these converted Jews who had the temptation to go back to their old way of life, to go back to that old way of sacrifice, not fully grasping all the ramifications of the new covenant and the the better sacrifice and the final, last and final for all sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so tonight in this little passage, we'll consider the contrast that the writer gives us between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Now, one of the repeated themes in the book is that everything in the new covenant is better than the old. Now, can you think of any of those things that the writer mentions? Uh, those of you who have read the book of Hebrews before, there's actually one even in our text. But what type of things are better? What's, what's so great about the new covenant versus the old covenant, according to the writer of Hebrews? Ooh, the man in the back. Say it again. Yes. The great high priest, right? The great and final high priest. There's no more high priest being appointed every year. Thank you. Others? The law could not atone? The law could not atone? Okay. 
Good. What else? <laughs> well, the sacrifices are done away with. The, the freedom from sacrifices. The, the temple, the animal sacrifices, and all of that, the, the slaughter of literally millions of animal, animals having their throats slit and being thrown on the altar, that's done away with because we have the, the better sacrifice in the Lord Jesus. That's in chapter 9 that comes out. Zion, and we have come onto a better mountain, Mount Zion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the, uh, the old one was, um, you know, the mountain that Moses went up to. That was burning with fire. Yeah, we're going to look at that one tonight, exactly. Yeah. It's not tied to a physical location anymore. That's right. It's spiritual, right? It's uh, the idea that there's something physical and tangible the author is really saying that that's temporal that's going to be done away with what's real is what's spiritual what about in relation to the angels what does the writer say in regards to Christ and the angels Christ is better far superior right than the angels right far far superior priesthood we have a better hope we have a better covenant we have better promises those are in chapter 7 the better sacrifice a better possession in chapter 10 Longing for a better country, right? Eleven sixteen, and even last week, in our those of you who were at Grace Bible San Diego, we considered the widow's son, um, Elijah raising the widow's son, and I think in chapter eleven, verse thirty-five, when it says women received their dead back by resurrection, that's speaking of the the widow of Zarephath, and as well as the Shumanite widow in Second uh, Kings. So a better resurrection, it says here. And then even in our text, Christ's blood speaks better than the blood of Abel, and we'll develop that. So the backdrop of the first half of this uh, passage that we're looking at is really Exodus 19. It's um, God giving the law there, and uh, so we'll be referring to that in a minute. So the passage breaks up very nicely, uh, verses 18 to 21, and then 22 the 24. So first of all, touching the mountain, Mount Sinai, can be deadly. That's essentially what the uh, writer is emphasizing. That's essentially what we have in Exodus 19. Mount Sinai was part of the created order and was experienced by our census. First of all, he says that it was a blazing fire. Well, you can skip down to the last verse of this chapter and read that. Somebody that's turned there, Caleb? Chapter 12 and verse 29. Could you read that? 1229. For our God is a consuming fire. So our God is a consuming fire. The writer comes back to that. And here it's talking about the mountain, a blazing fire. In Revelation chapter 8, the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. Now if you want to put one finger in Exodus 19, we'll be flipping back and forth there. In fact, maybe I could ask someone to read verses 16 to 19 of Exodus 19. Who would be willing to do that for us tonight? Exodus what? 19, 16 to 19. <clears throat> I'm there already, so I'll... Go ahead. <laughs> Jubal lost the Bible drill. <laughs> <laughs> 16 through 19. So it came at, 
It came about on the third day, when it was morning, that there were thunder and lightning flashes, and a thick cloud upon the mountain, and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with the thunder. Can you imagine that, kids, witnessing something like that? Can you imagine that, adults, being near the foot of the mountain and witnessing this billowing smoke, this thunder, this this loudness and, and the, the scene that this is something divine that's going on there. There's something radically different than everyday life that's going on here. And so in verse 18, it talks about that it was uh, descended upon it. The Lord's presence really descended upon it, and it was in a fire. The writer goes on to talk about darkness and gloom, and we see that as well in this passage in verse 16, but also in Deuteronomy 4, it says... You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the very heart of the heavens, and darkness and cloud and thick gloom were upon it. And so this is quite a scene. In the midst of this fire, uh, all the way up to the very heart of the heavens, it says in uh, Deuteronomy 4, that there's darkness and gloom. And that's what the writer tells us here in Hebrews. There's darkness and gloom and a whirlwind and and a storm. And we talked about that in Exodus 19 there as well. And then it talks about the blast of a trumpet. See that in verse 19 of our text? And to the blast of the trumpet, and we'll come back to the sound of words, what does that remind you of? Trumpet's a a familiar theme again and again in Scripture. There's several passages that speak to that. In fact, why don't we we turn? Let me give Jason 1 Corinthians 15, 52. And Stephen... 1 Thessalonians 4.16. Okay. (laughs) Steve has the secretary. Jubal? And then uh, in a minute, if you can be in Deuteronomy 4. Deuteronomy 4. Verse 12. And I'll call on you in a second. uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.16. Right. Just about one verse, right? Yes, you can go ahead. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Okay, and the first Corinthians 15. 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, but a trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, and perishable, and we shall be changed. So what are those verses essentially pointing to? What are, the, what are they telling us? What do we look forward to with that? Resurrection. Yeah. Right. Being taken up. That's the end. The yes. Uh, Matthew 24, likewise, says he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. And so even here in this scene, we see this. The sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Can you imagine? You're there at the foot of the mountain, and you're just you're plugging your ears. It's so loud. You can hardly stand it. That's the picture here that's going on. And then it talks about how 
Um, and the sound of words, which the sound of which that those who heard it beg that they no, no further word be spoken. And it says in verse 19 of Exodus, God answered him with thunder. Now it's very important. Let's look in De- uh, Deuteronomy 4. I've asked Jubal to uh, read 4.12 and then 5.23. Deuteronomy 4.12 Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words but saw no form. There was only a voice. What was the sound that they were hearing? According to that according to that verse, right? It's the Lord and then five twenty three as well. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me in the heads of your tribes and your elders. So with that verse in chapter four and verse twelve, the very divine voice of Almighty God coming forth sounded as though this thunder, this begging for those pure words that were going forth to stop because of their uncleanness. So, what does this tell us about God, this picture, this scene? What does that tell us about who God is and his character? What's that? Yeah, awesome in the true sense of the word, right? Not in the, uh, you know, the way that some of us might use it or, you know, the way that... Some kids use it, but awesome in the true sense of the word, right? What else? Magnificent. Magnificent. What else? Yeah. What about the people's response at the foot of the mountain? What would that tell us about what God is like? He's to be feared. Okay, he's to be feared, surely revered right he's holy right I mean this is a picture of holiness here uh, this is God's holy the majestic God demonstrated I mean by his holiness here there's fire there's darkness there's fear with those who looked on what an awesome scene the Israelites are overwhelmed by God's voice as we just read and his presence is unapproachable even a beast, it says actually in Exodus 20, we won't turn back there, but even if a beast touched the mountain, that it would die. So there's a, there's a picture here of something incredible. Um, verse 12 and 13, we didn't read this. I'll read this in Exodus 19. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up to the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain will surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through, whether beast or man, he shall not live. God is setting parameters here. This is serious stuff. So I I think it's just magnifying that God is altogether holy. Remember the scene in Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah has a vision, right? And and what does he hear the angels singing? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy is the Lord of hosts. There's a picture here of the incredible holiness of God. And even Moses, remember he's that old covenant mediator, right? He mediates for the people of God several times. A type of Christ that would come. Even Moses is full of fear and trembling. So that's the picture. That's the backdrop of what he's going to tell us about Zion. 
And for those of us who are in Christ, praise God we don't approach God through Sinai. Amen? Amen. Praise God that we don't have to go and fear because we would not live. In fact, our inability to come because of our sin to, to approach God and His holiness shows us of our need of Zion to enter through Zion. So we might scratch our heads. Here's a, another contrast of many that the writer in Hebrews sets up to show these Jewish believers that, look, you can't go back. There's a better way. And the way here is the way of Zion. So let's consider the wonderful glories of Mount Zion here. Look at the text. For you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. What does it mean, you have come? Have we already come there? Yes. In what sense? Yeah. He's good at the rhetorical questions. <laughs> yes. Spiritually. Spiritually, right? Yes. Spiritually, we have come. It's actually, in the original, it's in the perfect tense, which speaks of something happening in the past, but having ongoing results. We have come. We will yet come, but we have come spiritually to Zion. And that came when we came to Christ, when we came to faith. Um, in Christ and we approach him and worship now where is Zion you kids Calvin you're in geography aren't you where's Zion at on the map okay where is Zion that's pretty good (laughs) portions of Jerusalem were referred to as Zion in fact Zion occurs 162 times, at least in the New American Standard, in our Bibles. Um, So Zion itself is often spoken of as as something figurative, the heavenly Jerusalem, as the answer is right here in the text, Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. But Zion is referred to remarkably so many times, especially in the Psalms. It's amazing. First time occurs in 1 Samuel chapter 5 I believe and, and just on through the prophets use Zion again and again especially Isaiah and Jeremiah pointing to that future pointing to that future city pointing to that inheritance that yet awaits the children of God and he uses these synonyms the city of the living God it's not the dead God the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem now what are some of the contrasts here let's let's look at what what the writer says um, the living God heavenly Jerusalem and to myriads of angels to the general assembly in the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God the judge of all and to the spirits of righteous of the righteous made perfect now what are some contrasts between what we just considered in the first part of the text and what we're reading and looking at right now But people were terrified because they were so sinful as opposed to coming to Zion and being perfect. Well, knowing that, that we're no coming fear. not in, the, in our own merit, but in the merit of another, yes. You've got great fear on the one hand, and you've got no fear on the other. Excellent. You know, you don't have the chasm as much as you have more of a personal relationship now. So there's a close, there's a more of a closeness. There's a, a relationship, okay. Others? Well, the gospel has uh, brought us into that 
which otherwise law would have brought us into the second the previous situation. Mm -hmm. In a way, the author is reminding what the law could not do. You know, we're delivered. The wrath has been taken care of. Yes. Otherwise, we would only know God in that way. That's mm -hmm. right. Yeah. We would not see the part of being the, you know, in the house of God. Yeah. Fully Good. Jubal. Uh, that God says, stay away from the mountain. Uh. And here we see that um, we do not have a high priest who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. One who in every respect, blah, blah, blah. It says, let us then draw near with confidence, boldness, right? So we're encouraged to come here. We're prohibited from coming in the former situation. Good. Through Christ alone. Mm -hmm. Yes. I think we have a song these days we sing. Um, also, Steve mentioned it earlier, but one is physical and temporal. The other is eternal, right? Lasts forever. It's heavenly. It's glorious. Um, the psalmist in Psalm 2 says, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. So again, the contrast to this holy mountain of Sinai that knows my king, King Jesus, is overall um, Mount Zion. And for us in the New Covenant, we no longer come to a physical temple. We no longer come to a, uh, a city like three times a year for the feast, right? But how do we worship now? Let's turn to communion. Communion. Okay. Through songs. We have a mediator. That's right. Well, anywhere. So we're going to come to that. He's our temple. Spirit and truth. Yes. Right. John four. Right. John four. Yeah. So Jesus told the woman, "This is the woman at the well. An hour is coming." When neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is of the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Isn't that a wonderful picture? The Father seeks even across Jewish boundaries into Gentile land here in Samaria, the Father seeks worshipers. He is a seeker. Isn't that wonderful? It's a beautiful picture. We know that he's elected those who would come. But what a beautiful picture to encourage us. And we worship in spirit and in truth. Of course, the full manifestation of Zion will be evident later in, in Hebrews, uh, in chapter 13, of verse 14. This one chapter, in the last chapter. For, for here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. And again, there's the speaking of the anticipation, right, of, of the full manifestation of Mount Zion as we will um, experience it when we go to be with the Lord. Philippians 3, verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, in the text it talks about the general assembly and the church of the firstborn. So let me ask you, are you a member of the general assembly? Kids, ask yourself that question. And what are the characteristics of this assembly? 
Notice we see first, it's with all the angels, the myriads of angels. What does that give you a picture of? Heaven. Heaven, yes. I mean, I think Revelation 4 and 5, those anthem songs, worshiping the Lord, praising the Lord, the ones that we will uh, join our voices in to sing as well. Um, But it's a festive scene, isn't it? It, It's a scene of rejoicing. It's a festive scene. It's a glorious thing. And then with the church, with the ecclesia, all those who are the sons of Abraham are in the kingdom of God. And then notice it says, and who are enrolled in heaven. You kids are enrolled in school. Do you realize that? Now, how do you become enrolled in heaven? What is this text talking about? Enrolled in heaven. Is that something we sign up for? Is that something we have to call 1-800-ENROLL-ME-NOW? Or 1-800-HEAVEN? How do we get enrolled in heaven? What is it talking about here? Don't you think it's a reference to the book of life, probably? Mm -hmm. The the very thing that Paul refers to in Philippians 4 and verse 3. um, John refers to it in Revelation. I think it's a picture of the book of life. The church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And then to the judge of all. Now, here he mentions the judge of all. Kind of makes, I don't know, I think back to Mount Sinai. Mm -hmm. Um, But... This is um, speaking of the judge as the vindicator, as the one who pardons by virtue of what Christ has accomplished for us. By virtue of the payment that Christ has made, the judge says, no longer guilty. Enter in. That's a beautiful picture. In chapter 10, in verse 30, it says, and here we see a picture of this, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay And again, the Lord will judge his people. And then the writer says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You want to fall into his hands where where you're caught and where you are pardoned by virtue of the blood of Christ, by virtue of being justified by faith in Christ. You don't want to fall into his hands to be cast into hell and to be judged forever. It's a terrifying thing, the writer says. And we should take heed to that. And then this phrase, united with with these men who are righteous, um, all the spirit to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Um, that's a glorious picture there. What's that talking about? The word is actually souls, so it's speaking of people that are no longer living, right? How are they made perfect? Yeah, I'm just kind of throwing that out to the kids to see if they're. <laughs> How are they? Well, it says here that they're made perfect. How are they made perfect? We've been talking about it already. How how we even get to Zion, right? How are they made perfect? They're glorified, right? They're pardoned because of their faith in Christ. They're justified by faith alone. Um, In chapter 11, verse 39, just flip back. The writer in Hebrews 11 fascinates me also. Half of it's dedicated to just the saints in Genesis. 
And then he starts going through, and then in verse 32, he starts firing off names from judges, and then he realizes, I'm probably running out of time. And so he just starts kind of summarizing the prophets and everything. The verse 39, it says, All of these, we're not going to read, all those who were stoned, cut and sawed in two, uh, death by the sword, all of that. All of these having gained approval through their faith, that is, they were accepted to God by virtue of their faith, did not receive what was promised. Now, what does that mean? They did not immediately receive what was promised, but they certainly re- received received uh, their in Zion, but yet they're waiting for the full establishment of Zion when the Lord comes and destroys the world. It says, because God has provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. And he uses the same language of perfect. So we see in the new covenant, we understand all the ramifications that Christ is a final priest and all of that. They, by faith, looking forward to Christ, did not fully see all of these things. Of course, they understand it now. And then, best of all, it says in the text, and then you, in verse 24, and you have come. Now, remember, all of this is modifying you've come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And, of course, 1 Timothy 2.5, there's one mediator between God and man. So how does the blood of Jesus speak better than the blood of Abel? Look at the last phrase. And to be sprinkled, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. How does it speak better than the blood of Abel? Isn't Abel righteous? Well, as far as what we can tell, yes. Right, he wasn't sinless, and, and is that blood precious enough to save? No. And what, 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 is this, what does the Bible say about his blood? Cried out. Cried out, right? Which is what? A picture of what? Crying out to be uh, judged, right? So it's a picture of judgment. What does Christ's blood cry out? Atoned, mercy, forgiveness, permanent, forever. It is finished. Hey, stop. did you say that? Susie. That's all. Great. Colossians 1.20, And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Real and lasting peace. There's no peace with the blood of Abel. Right? His blood cries out from the earth. Um, in Genesis 4, but there's peace, lasting peace with the blood of Christ. So, when Jesus died on the cross, where did he die? What's that place called? Can't go, call it the, uh, Calvary, right? So, it's almost as though you have Calvary in between Sinai and Zion. And so, Jesus comes to make something possible that, that's never possible through the law. We can never... Um, do enough good works and keep God's law perfectly to be acceptable to him, Jesus fulfills all the demands of Sinai so that we can approach Zion. And through him we have priestly access. And that's emphasized again and again um, in this book, but chapter 7, verse 25. Therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So... In conclusion, I think these two mountains give us a picture of the ways that people seek to approach God. Some people approach God 
through the law. Some people try to approach God through their keeping of the law, through their good works. They think somehow they can be acceptable to God. Now, what's wrong with that picture? It doesn't work, right? What is the sum of all of our righteous deeds, the most Mother Teresa type in the world or whatever? What's the sum of It's filthy rags, right? And that's a polite way to put it. We won't say the, you know, the, the, the force of that. It's worthless. It's worth nothing but maggots and it just worth nothing whatsoever before God. But we come through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I love in Philippians, which I'm growing in my affection for this book, but Philippians in verse 8 and 9, Paul says, I count, that all, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. A familiar passage, but how true that is. The great Apostle Paul, if he could say this, how much more how we should proclaim that. That should be our confession. And it illustrates really how Christians live today. Some Christians feel that they have to they beat themselves up if they if they fail in one area or another. Now, we should strive to be holy. We should strive to keep God's law. I'm not negating all of that. But if you're constantly living under the fear of the law, like Pilgrim with Mount Sinai hanging over him where he's just in fear, that's not the way the Lord meant for us to live the Christian life. We're to live in the fullness and the freeness that, of, of understanding that Christ has paid for all of my sins. God sees me a wretched sinner as righteous by virtue of what Christ accomplished on the cross. That needs to be our thinking. That's gospel-orientated thinking. Now, lest you think, oh, but if I think like that, God sees me righteous, let me run off and sin. No, that's total opposite. The, the true child of God will recognize that as being so undeserving that he will strive to live a life of gratitude to please the Lord in all respects. So, do we live our lives trying to please God through Sinai? Um, I think Paul addresses this in Galatians. Having begun in the Spirit, now you're trying to be perfected in the flesh by these outward things? No. We come to Zion, the city of the living God. So, in conclusion, we have passports, each one of us who are in Christ. Now, I've got a passport at home. It's blue. It's about this big. I've been to a few countries here and there, Europe and Africa and all that. But I'm not talking about that kind of passport. I'm talking about a passport that says your citizenship is not American, but is in heaven. Your citizenship is in Zion. Those of you who are in Christ, you have that passport. And that should give you great joy. That should give you uh, encouragement to seek to please the Lord with the life of gratitude. And those of you who are outside of Christ, what a dreadful thing. How I pray that you would see Christ as a wonderful Savior and to come to Him in due time. Because what a frightening thing. Our God's a consuming fire. You read it earlier, Caleb. I'm talking about this fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. 
We just read about Mount Sinai, this darkness, this blazing fire, darkness, gloom, the fear that even Moses had. That's the alternative. And the alternative, the other alternative is to look to Christ, to come to him. He will cast none away if they come in faith. Let's pray. Father, knit these words to our heart, we pray. Help us, O God, to realize that we have a passport that is unshakable. We have a seal that can never be taken away, not by a devil, not by an enemy. We thank you, O God, that you have us in your hand and that none slip away. We thank you that we are even engraved in the palm of your hands. And Lord, that gives us great faith. You will indeed cause us to persevere. We bless you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.